Belcher. Welcome to Crown the Bay, our short stories of poetry for December 8th. I'm Terrence O'Donnell, your favorite Calais. Come sit with me next to a warm fire with a cup of something while I read you some fictional stories of poetry again this week. Once again, I've got seven short stories and poems for you, a couple of fantasy and science fiction stories, a couple of poems, and Robert J. Longpre's second chapter from his new book. I enjoy reading stories and poems, especially during the colder months. I used to read stories to my kids when they were really young. There's nothing better than sitting somewhere warm and listening to good stories and poems for a wee bit to take your mind off your troubles. This Once a Week podcast is available to listen to on nearly every podcast platform out there. And now on YouTube, I started my own channel. I'm starting to get serious about producing a video version of my podcast. I do have the equipment and the platforms. So my question is, how do you, the audience, feel about that? Now, my subscriptions are still free, but I do have a donations tab on the rss.com webpage, and it's going to be found with a link in the newsletter, and at the end of every Medium newsletter, and on my website at crowntobeha.com. So I appreciate any donations to support my efforts to bring all these stories and poems to you. Disclosure for everyone. In order to read the complete stories and poems, you'll need to sign up for a subscription to Medium. I found out more about this new Medium Extra thing called Friends of Medium. It allows the author to set up a link that can be shared with everyone. If I see one in the stories, I'll let you know. Now, my first story is called The Equines of Redemption. If only ladies could recognize gift horses, they would give them a wide berth by David Pahor and published in Illumination Curated. She is an attractive woman with just the kind of physique I prefer, airing on the skinny side, but with full hips and pert breasts. And the legs, I fancy them long and lean, but with calves with some meat on them. She smells nice, too, beneath that budget perfume. She has this overwhelming veracity for a duration that most of them possess after interacting with a smooth operator like me, inhabiting the body of their dear deceased, clueless, and fumbling partners. She smells nice, too, beneath that budget perfume. She has this overwhelming veracity for adoration that most of them possess after interacting with a smooth operator like me, inhabiting the body of their dear deceased clueless and fumbling partners. Playing the ladies is an art I master intuitively, along with placing bullets into people. Oh, how the darlings want to believe the wayward are redeemable, preferably by their good spiritual endeavor. It never occurs to them that condemned criminals can indeed be plain evil which, in essence, describes me. I gave her the customary spiel I delivered to the dames of the unfortunately and secretly departed, to whose mortal remains I am relocated for the six-month clandestine assignments to use and abuse in the line of duty. Enjoying the women is simply a perk of a dangerous, thankless job, the fat ruby cherry on an otherwise sour cake. I told her I was not the man she married, obviously since I was much more loving, and did not deserve her shininess. Of course, she might not have declared her love so unconditionally had she known of his wailing vestiges inside me. It's the undisclosed small details that make all the difference, they say. And there's a reason our sort has earned the epitaph, gift horse, in the black house community. You should never look one in the soul. My next one is a poem from Mariana Bosarava in Bulgaria. This year is leaving. Where's the winter? She published this in Right Under the Moon. This year's leaving. Where's the winter? The sky in grayish painted clouds hides. 
There's something vulnerable like a hint, like a sparing of words that divides us. Your eyes in those gray shades mirror. Sometimes the blue color is lured and winds. The mist is spinning its soft yarn so near, intertwines with all our bitter sweet sins. And I weave a filigree and smooth rhythm from the words that I want to tell you, although I have a lot to ask you, telling them, and even more to listen here in the blue. You stepped inside me like the sweetest song, then you broke all the bounds with a smile. I hope you arrived right where you belong. Will you stay with me forever or for a while? This year's leaving, numerous questions through my narrowed eyelids rush. You touch my cheek. I devour your gesture. I will love you until this world's cr next crush. Now I've got a story. It's called Laura's Theme by David Sheehan. In the last vestiges of a warm fall day, you know, just before long sleeves and woolen vests, a day that needed a walk in it, before breathing in the cold air the message that lungs it was time to hibernate. Slowly making my way down to the St. George River as high tide brought whatever Atlantic pushed in this morning. Staying free of the wet mud along the bank and sidestepping those long wooden boxes that the clam people fashioned to hold their catch of the multi-sized bivalve mollusks dug up from the mud flats at low tide. Soon, like everything else, the cold and wind of winter would freeze and the river take on the look of a quiet mirror that only God could paint. This day was special, and as I walked toward the train trestle running over the river, I felt a sense of calm looking forward to observing the sunrise and sitting on my log to think, to take in, to enjoy, to breathe, to be. The sky broke red, and with thickening clouds, my mind's camera focused on an apparition 10 to 12 feet across the tracks from me. I quickly rubbed my eyes, blinked twice, looked back to find this specter forming into the shape of a woman. She seemed about five foot high, and though she was standing facing me, her body shifted like it was a tornado. Leaves flew about, and tiny birds escaped her as if fleeing her ferocity. With her arms, she strategically covered her topless body, and long, beautiful hair obscured her face. I thought, does she need help? What and who is this? Is she real? Am I dreaming? Did I fall and hit my head on a train track? Without any notice, I received a thought from her that I was okay, and she was too. As the sun became brighter, she pushed her hair aside, and I beheld her beautiful face, dark expressive eyes, and the kind of lips that fired my best dreams for years. She smiled slowly, and I was totally mesmerized, still not believing what I was seeing. I managed to speak out, and asked, how are you here, and why? She read my mind, and the whirlwind around here became less agitated, and she spoke. I'm the one you see in your dreams, the one whom you kissed a million times, and stroked my hair with your gentle touch, gave everything of yourself to me, encouraged me, live loving me. You talked to me when I needed, you held your tongue when I needed, and you cared. When she spoke, visions of what she said flowed through my mind, of every kiss or touch or connection I had ever experienced and my body felt warm like a warm blanket in winter. For the moment, I felt swaddled in her crimson aura and more content than I'd been for years. How many times through those years had I dreamed to have her with me? Life, as so often happens, got in the way. Jobs, moves, betrayal, and ill health, and as Gilda Radner often ranted, quote, it's always something, unquote. The more I looked at her, the more I wanted to hear more, but words between us had come to more of a telepathic exchange of intimate thoughts and desires better left to unfold and ethereal. In the distance, a strong whistle of the daily train, at least through October, headed to Rockland to pick up passengers for their return trip to Brunswick, Maine. 
I was trying to hold on to my dream for as long as possible, and I stood up and crossed the tracks to embrace my crimson lover, but she rushed like a wind to me, pulling me off the tracks and falling down on top of me. She whispered, I came here to save you. As I squeezed her and opened my eyes, she was gone as quickly as she had appeared. Happy but unhappy, I worked my way back toward my home. To write or to dream, what should I do? Quote, ah, now I hardly know her, but I think I could love her. Crimson and Clover, unquote. My next is a science fiction story. Sims, When a Genius Gets Lonely, All She Has to Do is Make Some Friends, by Deborah Walker, published in Future Tales, Trolling the Past for Future Inspiration. A Merry Little Christmas Science Fiction Story. In the light of the twinkling, tawdry Christmas lights, I'm typing just as fast as I can, deleting as much as I'm able, but they've created walls around my commands, convoluted labyrinths of protection. They're smart, smarter than me. How is that possible? They lead me along blind alleys. They sacrifice themselves and their billions to protect their shared central consciousness. Hope flares and dies in me like guttering lantern light. I'm bathed in cold sweat. Beads of perspiration linger at my breast. I glance at my arm. The silver line snaking the line of my artery has reached my elbow. I resist the urge to scratch it. They're within me, under my skin, making their steady way, away from my heart, towards my head. It was only one week ago that I came up with the idea. That I'd coded the programs for the data people, my fingers flying over the keyboards as if I were divinely inspired. I remember glancing at the mirror on the wall seeing myself and being embarrassed. This was me, a woman without family or friends, a lonely woman. It's always been the same. But so what? Couldn't I make my own happiness? Couldn't I use my intelligence to do something for myself? Defiantly, I'd written that simple ancient command, worship me. And they had. Their small electronic minds adored me. For the first time in my life, I'd been loved in the total unconditional love of a thousand tiny, almost mindless entities. I was their goddess. They loved me. I made them that way. Introducing a self-replicating algorithm, it seemed like a good idea. Their growth was incredible. Each evening, I'd hurried home from her long day in the lab, not caring that my colleagues went to their Christmas parties, their festive meals, and their families. I didn't care that no one asked me, that they didn't even seem to see me. Because I'd spend my evenings listening to voices praising me, I thought it was harmless. It felt good that someone liked me. I never had the trick of making people like me. Computers and numbers were all I ever understood. But then today, the they were a billion. The next day saw a tenfold increase. After that, I lost count. Being loved was intoxicating. All I cared about was their countless voices ringing out of the computer stereo, a hosanna of electronic insultation. When did they start to mutate? When did they start to swarm out of my control? Reproducing fast as an electronic impulse, and evolving. When did they start to accrete matter from ambient molecules, turning into nanomatter actuality? I didn't know. Their voices still sang in praise. That central piece of conicity could never be unwired. And last night, when I finally realized and tried to destroy them, still they loved me. They loved me even as I tried to uncreate them. The newly formed central consciousness worshipped me even as it invaded me. The data entities exulted as they built bigger and bigger bodies from the molecules of their goddess body, their science combining seamlessly with their religion. Praise her, praise her, praise the creator. The silver line of bodies has crawled to my shoulder. They're moving so fast. 
Soon I'll reach my brain blood barrier. No matter how hard I try, I can't halt their progress. Even when the central consciousness divined my intentions, they did not falter in their praise. Praise her, praise her, praise the duality. She is both the creator and the would-be destroyer. And what greater homage could the supplicants offer? I feel them, joyously leaping into my brain, silver worshippers on oddly red-shaped horses. Into my mind, racing along the strange, convoluted gray mountains. I'm dying. Their epiphany is so close. The savage pilgrims screaming their praise as they consume my thoughts, as they become me. Transfiguration and her goddess sacrifice. Lines of pity flow down my face. Not for myself, but for my children. When I'm dead, when they find out what they've done. Oh, my poor children. I love you. I forgive you. Now I have another story. And this one is a science fiction story, a fictional story. The Cost of Obedience. When ceaseless desperation hits, how far are you willing to go to make your ends meet? By Erosia Potter, published in the Kraken Lore. It was meant to be easy. One night, one room, one task. In exchange, you would walk away with $100,000. All you had to do was make a series of choices, record the results. Data redacted. Systems activated. Panopticon 13, mission accepted. Prisoner 337-9561, cell 493, unit C. Messages received. Prisoner has been prepped, waiting on the overseer to initiate the first test. Desperation was the mother of all motivation. Nothing less than desperation would let me accept a job from a group of men in black offering a crap ton of money. All I had to do in exchange was sit around and watch a few screens. Yeah, that made it easier to accept. That should have been the first clue something was wrong. $100,000. That's what they were offering in exchange for watching a few live feeds. $100,000. I should have questioned what I was going to be watching if that's how much money I'd walk away with. Sitting at that desk a week later told me nothing they should have said would have prepared me for the work. A large coffee pot sat on the desk, the liquid within and hot and dark, and a small comfort. I was already three cups in, screens on a wall glowing in the darkness of my cell. On the central screen, a man stood in the middle of the room. His uniform was torn, his orange sleeves ripped off and bound around his hands. With his back facing me, I could see the barcode on the back of his neck. I took another drink of the coffee as three screens above the central one lit up, the rest of the monitors darkening. My grip tightened on the warm cup, my gaze roaming over the screens as the prisoner in the central monitor turned and stared at the camera. It was like he was staring at me through the feed. My stomach twisted, the coffee almost sickening in its sweetness. I swallowed, watching as he made his way to one side of the wall and began writing something. When he stepped aside, the words made my skin cold. Pick the hardest one that's not likely to kill me. My attention shifted to the screens above his. The rooms within them shattered in impregnable dark. I leaned forward, squinting, trying to see more clearly. It would have been helpful if the people who put me up to this would have, at the very least, gave me a way to see what was lurking in the shadows. How was I supposed to make a choice if I didn't know what it would be? It was one thing to change the temperatures, to open the door to another criminal, and watch them fight it out. It was different when not even I knew what was lurking in the shadows. And that clearly was the point. My gaze went to the console next to me, the three buttons on it blinking. I had to make a choice. I reached over, my fingertips skimming the three soothed services as I eyed the screens. Swizzing my eyes shut, I slammed my hand over one of them. 
The clarion song, its song coming through the intercom, and I knew one of the doors in the prisoners' areas was opening. Whatever was lurking in the darkness would come out. Whatever happened, it would happen because of me. Above my door, the speaker lit up. My fingers curled over the arms of my chair, my skin cold and clammy, as the voice from the static whispered, Watch, overseer. See the fruits of your choice. There was no choice but to obey. My eyes opened, my gaze on the screen and the door on the left opening. The prisoner was shifting his weight to face the door, his bulk straightening as the door slowly cranked upward into the shadows of the ceiling. My fingers trembled, my knuckles white, as something within those dark shadows stirred. I watched as Mr. Fogg, or some unholy combination of the two, rolled out from the darkness to cover the floor of the room that the prisoner was locked within. Despite the unknown nature of what was about to happen, he looked to be calm, composed. He didn't inch away from the door as it opened, and he didn't try to steer away from the curling fog. As the white, wispy waves curled around him, climbing his legs, his body remained facing the gaping dark hole in the wall. My heart was racing, my palms tingling as I saw something shift in the dark. A glint of light, a large form rising. The movements were rough, disjointed, and my heart skipped a beat as a long metal hand wrapped around the side of the wall. Cold, silver fingers bit through the heavy stone. Dust whirled through the air before vanishing in the rolling fog. I could do nothing but watch as the machine, humanoid in appearance, tipped out of the darkness. Its eyes were bright even in the gloom, alive with power and driven by whatever command was put into action the moment I opened its cage. As the metal monstrosity lunged forward, my jaw clenched. and the machine and mortal flesh connected, Arcs of red slashed through the air. It covered the screen, leaving long, slow-moving streams that obscured the room it was recording. Slowly, the monitors went dark. Messages received. Prisoner 337-9561 has perished. Overseer 117-9229 results incoming. Awaiting Warden's judgment on Overseer. Message from the Warden. Overseer 117-9229 did the agreed-upon work despite the initial objections to the test put into place. Communication between Overseer and prisoner occurred, a breach of the contract file for future analysis. Obtained and placed into 337-9561's old cell. More tests are needed to verify human judgment. Now I have a poem. It's a poem from Deborah G. Harmon, M.E.D., published in Imogene's Notebook. A Winter Night We Loved, a poem. We walk winter snowfields, our breath form clouds, frozen steam from our mouths, our tracks mark away back in snow. In October, we found windfall apples and crunched under an orange canopy of maples, but now this frozen meadow is ours alone. In front of us, it appears suddenly the statue of the horse, rearing up. Hoofs threatened, but he is frozen in night air, icicles on a brown's mane. We turn inward, the wonder of it all, and our mouths find warmth. The beauty of a frozen stallion and how young we are. The earth turns for us. In the absolute enormity of time and space was a rapturous moment. I feel even now in these old bones. My last story is Robert G. Longpre's second chapter of Sanctuary. And this one is entitled The Escape Plan. Chapter 2. Carrie had kept the cavern a secret from Anne. Where are you taking me? Anne asked as Carrie had driven a few miles out of the city. To the cabin your mom talked about. My dad has a place in the north. 
That's where we're going, Carrie replied. I'm going to stop in for gas when we get to Grassy Lake, which is about two hours from here. We'll get something to eat there before we drive on to reach Dad's hideaway cabin. I didn't know your dad had a place in the north. Neither did I till just very recently. You remember when my dad and I went fishing the first week of July? That's when I found out about the cabin. Why didn't you tell me about it when you came back? That was more than two months ago. Dad told me not to tell anyone till it was time to do so. He worked out a secret code, a signal really, that would let me know when the time had arrived for me to head to the cabin. When I went into my home just before you arrived, I saw the signal. Now I'm supposed to get there as soon as possible. You have never kept secrets from me. You should have told me, Carrie. I couldn't tell you, Anne. I wanted to tell you, but I just couldn't. Even my mom didn't know about the cabin. Giving Carrie a glare, Anne turned sideways to tear out the window. The remaining miles to the gas station, which had a small restaurant, seemed to take forever. Carrie tried unsuccessfully to get Anne to talk. Each time he tried, she simply glared at him before turning again to stare out the window, and then he heard her crying. He pulled over to the side of the road and took her into his arms. As she began to sob in earnest, it wasn't about Carrie's keeping a secret from her. She cried because her dad was sick, and maybe even her mother was sick, and she hadn't even been able to say goodbye to them, to hug them. Anne was worried they might even die. She cried because now she worried that maybe even Carrie was going to die, and now all she was doing was giving Carrie grief. Carrie didn't say a word. He just held her tight as she cried. Pulling away, Anne pleaded, Don't die on me, Carrie. Please don't die. I'm not going to die. You don't have to worry. Finally, with Anne leaning against him and closed her eyes, Carrie resumed the drive to the gas station. As he pulled up to the gas pump, he gently woke Anne. We're here. We'll eat as soon as I put in some gas, okay? Anne nodded as she said, I'm going to wash up in the restroom. With the tank filled with gas, Carrie parked a car next to the restaurant. He was starving. Anne found Carrie seated at a booth and slipped in the seat across from him. Both ordered burgers and fries. Carrie added a large coffee while Anne settled on hot chocolate. It's to make sure I stay alert while driving, he added unnecessarily. Carrie, you said something about you not going to die. How can you know that? Did you say it just to stop me from worrying? Um, he gave in response while wondering just how much he should tell her. He decided that a partial truth was better than a lie, and much better than telling the complete truth. Um, apparently I share the same genetic code as my dad. You remember how I just don't seem to get sick? Well, that's the reason. Anne looked at Carrie with question marks evident in her eyes, questions that she knew would have to wait. She could tell that Carrie had only given her a part of an answer. She was too tired, however, too worn out to make an issue of it at this point in time. So when do we get to this cabin? It's another two and a half hours away. This will be our last stop until we get there. Dad will be waiting up for me, for us. Don't worry, he'll be glad that I brought you along. I think my parents like you more than they like me, he laughed. Carrie found the side road, an old and rarely used road in the dark. There were no street lights. Carrie remembered his father's instructions to drive 15.3 kilometers past the bridge, where he would see a birch tree with three trunks on the left side of the road. It was the largest birch tree Carrie had ever seen in his life. We're almost there, Anne, just another ten minutes at the most. A faint glow gave them advance notice of their nearing the end of the road. There were lights on in the cabin. He stopped the jeep about fifty meters from the house, which appeared to be on top of a small hill, and turned off the motor. Why don't you drive any closer, Anne asked, surprised at how far Carrie had parked from the cabin. This is as far as I can go. The road ends here. That's weird. Carrie didn't say anything as he got out of the jeep. He waited for Anne before beginning to walk to the cabin. 
Taking their bags with them, they walked about 20 meters toward the cabin. They came upon a dark wall. A light came on a few meters to the right, highlighting the entrance through the wall. This way, I guess, Carrie said. And that's all the stories I have for you this week. I uh, I hope you liked them. Um, you know, a pretty good, decent variety. And as always, uh, hopefully I entertain you, and uh, I hope you come back again next week for some more. Until next week, slantcha. Kora Mahagat. Thank you for listening to the show today. I hope you enjoyed it. You'll return again for another episode of Crown of Bayes Stories of Poetry next week. Share this podcast with your friends and relations. The more, the merrier. Search for Crown of Bayes Stories and Poetry in your favorite podcast app. I hope I've achieved my goal on helping you feel like we've been sitting under the village oak tree as I entertain you today. This is Shauna King. I want to continue to delight you with a story or a poem that may bring you a smile or make you think a little after we part for the day. As I say goodbye this week, I wish to leave you with this Irish blessing as you go about your day. Bless you and yours, as well as the cottage you live in. May the roof overhead be well thatched, and those inside be well matched. Shlongo foil, which means goodbye for now in Irish. Thank you.